Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous opportunity to come and study your text, your very words, Lord. Spirit breathed through the hand and follower of you, the Apostle Paul, Lord, we are excited to take a look at not only how we could be saved, Lord, but how that we can know we are saved. Father, I pray today that you would touch hearts, uh, my own included, Lord, as we consider your text and all that it means for our lives and those around us, Lord, that we would not just be mute Christians, but those who walk, live, are willing to speak the gospel and live it in the world boldly, Lord. Help us in this endeavor. We'll give you all the glory. All God's people said, amen. With the capacity of 8,500, the field house was packed. The home crowd waved U.S. flags and sang patriotic songs such as God Bless America. Before the game, Coach Brooks read his players a statement he had written out on a piece of paper telling them that You were born to be a player. You were meant to be here. This moment is yours. Coach Brooks believed that they could win and would later go on to say, I quote, the Russians were ready to cut their own throats, but we had to get to the point to be ready to pick up the knife and hand it to them. So the morning of the game, I called the team together and I told them this, it is meant to be. This is your moment, and it's going to happen. Well, if you're old enough or a hockey fan, you will remember the miracle on ice. It was a hockey game during the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, played between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was the medal round of the men's tournament, and the Soviet Union was a four-time defending gold medalist and heavily favored over the United States, who had the youngest and the most inexperienced team in the competition. If you remember the game, you will know that the U.S. scored twice in the final period, taking the score to the U.S. of four and the Soviet Union three. In the final moments of the game, the Soviets, who in perceived panic, took multiple shots, one of which was heart-stopping as it bounced off the right goalpost. In the final 20 seconds of the game, a wild scramble for the puck ensued, ending when Johnson found it and passed it to Ken Morrow. As the U.S. team tried to clear the zone, the crowd began to count down the seconds. Sportscaster Al Michaels, who was calling the game on ABC, picked up on the countdown in his broadcast and delivered this famous call. 11 seconds, you've got 10, the countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Silk, five seconds left in the game. Four, three, do you believe in miracles? Yes. 
And the U.S. the U.S. went on to win in the most unlikely of circumstances. Later, Sports Illustrated voted the U.S. victory over the Soviets as the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. As miraculous as it seemed, the miracle on ice, beloved, was not a miracle. We often use the word miracle in the context of a set of events that unfold in such a way that to our human perception, uh, that circumstances align just perfectly, and like the miracle on ice, the U.S. would win. However, the proper definition of a miracle is an effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause. The Bible describes such miracles throughout its pages. When we think of the creation of all that we see from nothing found on the first pages of Genesis, we think miracle, do we not? In the book of Exodus, we see the ten plagues of Egypt, the Red Sea crossing, manna in the wilderness, and water coming out from a rock. In the book of Numbers, Aaron's rod budded, the uh, serpent bit Israelites were healed, and the false prophet Balaam's donkey spoke. In Joshua, the Jordan was parted, the walls of Jericho fell down, and the sun and moon stood still. There are 24 miracles recorded in Kings and Chronicles to include miraculous feedings and resurrections. And in Daniel, his friends are delivered from the fiery furnace and he from the lion's den. Wrapping up the Old Testament miracles is one that we are very familiar with, the one of Jonah, who is delivered from death at sea and subsequent intest- uh, intestinal right digestion from a giant fish. Well, as you are all aware, the New Testament is full of miracles. The most notable are the virgin birth and the resurrection from the dead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. The twelve apostles, Paul and Stephen, also experienced the Lord accomplish extraordinary events in the physical world that surpassed all known human or natural powers. Unlike the miracle on ice, They were legitimate miracles in the New Testament. We do hear of miracles today. Not too long ago, I listened to Paul Washer, a great conservative preacher and scholar. He has has and continues to speak of seeing healings on the mission field. And Valerie and I have missionary friends who had close friends in the field who had experienced extraordinary circumstances while trying to reach a remote tribe. As extraordinary as these things are, if you have been born again or you know somebody who has, you have experienced, beloved, a miracle. I want to take a look at that today. Last week, one of our elders, Paul Grant, shared a message titled, What Must I Do to Be Saved? He passionately shared from Luke 23, verses 39 and 43. The crucifixion scene of our Lord answering the question. Paul used that passage to point out the elements of salvation which exist in every genuine Christian's testimony. If you're not practiced at sharing your testimony, I encourage you to listen closely and hopefully you can go back and listen to Paul's message. But I'll summarize it here. It will always have these four things in it. 
Check to see if yours does. He pointed out that the thief who was next to Jesus on the cross, first and foremost, feared God. He was lost, remember? Saying to the blaspheming thief, he said this, Do you not even fear God? So any genuine Christian, Christian testimony will have an element of fear when they think of being judged by a holy God. Second, the thief in the genuine Christian's testimony will acknowledge their sin. The thief said this, We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our, de our deeds. The second point of any genuine Christian's testimony will be that they will identify with their sin. The third, the thief and any genuine Christian will acknowledge Jesus' unjust punishment for a sinless life. The thief said this, this man has done nothing wrong. Fourth, the thief and any genuine Christian will acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus. The thief understood that Jesus was not going to stay dead, saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Beloved Pastor Paul answered the question, what must I do to be saved? He pointed out that one must fear God, recognize their sin, accept Jesus' sinless life on their behalf, and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Believe those truths of Scripture, and the Scripture says not you might be saved, that you will be saved, and you will be given the Spirit of God. Where Paul answered the question, what must I do to be saved? Today we will answer the question, how do I know that I am saved? Why is that so important? How many of you know that it's the longer you walk in your Christian life, and the more you encounter, struggle with, and tempted by sin, the more and more you often fall back and you begin to wonder. And you begin to ask the question, am I saved? How would I know that I am saved? And beloved, we're going to dig into that today. And the answer is a simple answer, much like the answer to Paul's question was a simple answer. Believe. <laughs> The answer includes nothing short of a miracle. Not one like the miracle on ice, but an extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers. How do I know that I am saved from God's coming wrath on sin? A genuine Christian will have newness of life. Newness of life. Take a look there in your text, Romans 6 verse 1 what shall we say then are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase beloved paul starts chapter 6 by responding to a question that often comes up in the preaching of the gospel the question is quite logical and we can follow paul's thinking in chapters 1 through half of chapters 3 uh, Paul, we see the condemnation of all men. He starts, do you remember, with Gentiles, and then uh, I, I'm sure probably at the end of this section, if there were any Jews in Rome listening to this letter being read, he starts by condemning Gentiles and all their worship of all their idols and all this, and I'm sure every Jew that's sitting in that congregation is like, yeah, those sinning Gentiles, right? Well, Paul doesn't stay there very long, right? He turns right to the Jews, and, and for the next chapter and a half, almost two chapters, he condemns all men, including Jews, because of the law, to be sinners. 
and needing salvation. The Spirit answers after a person is saved by grace through faith. He, he begins to answer the question in the second half of chapter 3, extending through 5. The answer is most clearly seen. What should we then do in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, which say this, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So after condemning all men, both Gentiles and Jews, to be sinners, after saying in the next two and a half chapters that you can be saved by grace through faith, he says just a few verses later, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. With this expressed to the church, the question would arise if we are saved by the gift of grace through faith, and if sin increased, grace increased all the more, the question is this, shall we remain in sin? What is the answer? It could not be given in any stronger way there in your text. The NASB translates the answer, may it never be. The ESV says, by no means, the New King James, certainly not. The King James, God forbid. And the Holman Christian Standard says, absolutely not. Continuing in a rhetorical way, Paul answers his question with a second question. How shall we who died to sin live in it? The answer is obvious. We cannot. And continuing, he asks his third question. Or do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The answer, the Christian should know that God's grace is not a license to sin, but rather an agreement to die to it. The word baptism occurs two times in this verse and once in the next. It carries with it a tremendous amount of imagery. Imagery of death, burial, immersion, re-identification, resurrection, and newness of life. Interestingly, before the New Testament era, Plato and other early Greek writers would use the word baptizo to describe the sinking of a ship, giving the reader the idea of both complete and total immersion, right? This thing is going down, and also the idea of complete death. There was no way to bring that ship back, and that was the idea. The early use of the word is that it is going to sink. It's going to be completely immersed, and it is going to die. In the New Testament, the Koine Greek verb baptizo always refers to dip in or under, quite literally to immerse to be surrounded in. The word bama, a Greek word with the same root as bapto, means dyed material. And likewise, bapta, another Greek word, means a dyed or colored clothes. Quite obviously, to dye clothes, they must be immersed, right? You would have a, a pan or some kind of bowl, and you would have had spent a tremendous amount of time making the dye to get the color that you wanted for your clothes, and you would take those clothes, and you would baptizo them. You would immerse them. You would press them in. 
And ironically, and the imagery comes through even in our own baptism of today, right? Is this idea you are going in one way, you are dying to that, like that ship, going under, you will be fully immersed, dying and coming out a different color. The clothes would give up their original color to take on their new color or the color of the dye they are being immersed into. So, beloved, this is what the Spirit is saying here. If you are truly a Christian, you have been re-identified. If you are truly a believer, the old sinful self died when you re-identified with Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, said this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Beloved, we, how do we know that we have been saved? Our lives will be fundamentally different. Like a ship that was immersed into a watery grave in the sea, or a piece of clothing that was dipped into dye. A person life who has been baptized into Christ has died with Christ. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, have you died? Have you died to your old life? Has the color of your garments been changed? Are you fundamentally different? That is what Paul is asking here. There's so many of us. We have many different people in this building right now, probably who have uh, most likely have grown up in church and have heard the Word of God at some level, taught their whole lives. Sometimes those circumstances are difficult because we mix up what we know in our minds with what we know in our hearts. And it is often said that the longest 18 inches in the world is the one from the mind to the heart. But I tell you this, I know many Christians who have grown up in the church, I did not, that when they finally got saved, a light bulb came on and the connection went from their head to their heart and they would say to you, I was a new creature. It went from mental Christianity, following rules, showing up on time, being faithful, learning a catechism, to I do not want to sin against my Savior. I love the Lord. There is a fundamental change that goes on inside. The, the death that is happening is, is certainly a death, but it is a death that is happening because God has brought new life. Amen? You had been crucified with Christ. Summarizing the statement, Paul then says, Therefore, in verse 4, We have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So, beloved, the Spirit has guided Paul to answer the question, how do I know that I am saved from God's judgment on sinners? And the answer is very simple. You will have newness of life. If you do not have newness of life, you do not have life. You do not have it eternal. You may have right doctrine. You may have uh, a lot of different things. But without newness, 
of life. You do not have that life. The promise is this. Every human being, like the thief next to Jesus on the cross, who recognizes that God is holy and that he is going to judge every sinful thought and action, who understands their personal sin is deserving of God's judgment, who believes that Jesus was unjustly punished for sin that he did not commit and believes that Jesus did not stay dead but was resurrected unto eternal life and a kingdom to come of which we will celebrate today. Not might, but will receive the Holy Spirit and become a new person, having newness of life. It is clear. It is awesome. It is amazing. It is the very thing that takes a sinner who is a gross sinner, no matter how much their sin is sin to the world, and changes them on a dime. It takes them from the old person that they were into a brand new person, like John Newton, who was a, 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 a man who ran ships to steal human beings to become slaves, would see the error of his way and, and go on to get saved. Newness of life would come about in his heart, and he would write this song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. <laughs> John Newton knew what newness of life was. Friends, religious affiliation will not save you from God's judgment. No church attendance record, no church giving record, no correct doctrine, Bible memorization, or confirmation will save you. You must recognize your sin before a holy God. You must cry out for God's mercy. And you will be born again. This is why Jesus told the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is this newness of life, this regeneration, this born againness that affirms to every true believer that you are saved. If you have never experienced newness of life, you are not saved. It does not matter if you grew up in the church building or which one for that matter. You must have the Holy Spirit abiding in you if you want assurance of your salvation. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church in regards to our future resurrected bodies, said this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. For indeed, while we are in this tent, that is in our now, right? We groan. Why do we groan, beloved? We struggle with sin, right? Being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. He is speaking of the new body that is coming, and we don't want to stay in this condition. But to be clothed, that is the new body, so that uh, what is mortal, that is this body, will be swallowed up by life, right? Our new eternal bodies. Verse 5, now he who prepared for us this very purpose is God. Who did it? God did it. Who? Notice here, gave to us the Spirit. What did God do? <laughs> Give to you and I the Spirit and depending on your translation, mine says as a pledge. Some would say a down payment. God gave to you and I. If you are in here this morning and you are born again and you have uh, experienced being regenerated and you have newness of life, that is God, right, doing a work. He is placing inside of you his spirit as a down payment that you might know that you have newness 
of life, that you have been born again. It goes on in verse 17 to say this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? An old creature? A partially old creature? Kind of an old creature? No. A new creature. The old has what? Passed away. Behold, new things have already come, right? Now all these things are who? From, from where? From God, who did what? Reconciled us to himself through Christ. Beloved, if you have rightly understood the gospel and believed it, you will have received the Holy Spirit from God. You will be tempted by sin, but you will no longer be identified by it. You may fall into sin, but you will not remain in it. The Holy Spirit within you will not allow you to stay in sin. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have been indwelt by his Spirit. The imagery that we get in the New Testament, especially in Corinthians, is that uh, we often speak of it. We did hear that this tent, right? Uh, Paul would call our bodies a tent, this old tent, and, and clearly to the Jewish mind that is, that is speaking a lot, right? Because God's presence resided in the tent, the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And so we have this new tent, right, where God's Spirit would come and reside within it, although it is passing away and it struggles along with sin, we know that God's Spirit is living inside, therefore fundamentally making us new, a new creature. The old person will have identified with the death of Christ, and you will have newness of life. Amen? Friends, if this is not your Christian experience, and you are not a Christian, you may call yourself one. I beg you to be reconciled to God. I beg that you would do it today, right now. Don't wait another moment. Notice Paul says the same thing in a different way. I often, I don't know that I lament, but my boys often lament that their dad is a teacher. And what do teachers always do but say the same thing in a different way? And if you're a teenage boy, you look at your dad and you say, you just told me that. Yeah, but I didn't tell you in this way. That's what Paul does here. Pay attention to verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, there is the baptismal uh, burial imagery, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There is the newness of life imagery. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, there is the death to sin imagery, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, right? We're fundamentally new. We would have the newness of life imagery. And take a look, beloved, there at verse 7, for he who has died, pay attention, is freed from sin. Oh, beloved, there it is. He who has died right now, present, active, indicative, they are right now free from sin. They have newness of life. They have been regenerated. They are born again. Friends, in 1998, my wife and I experienced a miracle. 
It is the only miracle that we have ever experienced. We had been approached with the gospel. We recognized our sinful condition and cried out to God to save us. We put our faith in Christ's work on the cross on our behalf, and we believed that God raised Jesus from the dead. At that very second, the Spirit of God came into our lives, and we were born again. We received that down payment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The sin that we once celebrated became abhorrent to us. We did not really go to a church that preached against any kind of dress or any kind of way of acting, or you must change some kind of external appearance. But in our lives, we're completely and totally and radically changed. The music we listened to, we no longer wanted to listen to. Every time the church doors were open, we ran to the church doors. If somebody needed help inside the church, we were the first people to step up and say, how can we help? God had so radically changed our lives. What, what is that? It's not just me getting smarter. It's not me just finally, oh, I finally learned something, right? The old man had died, and the Spirit of God had come in, and the desires from the inside out changed, and our lives began to change. Beloved, that is a miracle. That is an extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all human or natural power, and it had happened to us. We were new creatures, amen. Can you identify with that? somewhere in your existence do you need to go back to that do you need to remember that like the church in revelation to return to that first love are you discouraged by sin has it drug you down have you been in some type of repetitive sin for so long that now you're starting to wonder praise god for that the bible says that if you remain in sin you're probably not a believer it also says that we can harden our hearts and we can be believers Return to that moment. Remember that moment when God placed his spirit in you and rest in that moment. Repent of your sin. Beloved, the sportscaster Al Michaels, who was calling the Miracle on Ice game in 1980, posed his question during the countdown. Do you believe in miracles? I do. I've watched it. I've watched it in my boys' lives. I've watched it in my lives. I've watched it in lives of, of tens of hundreds of other believers who were going one direction, and they turned to new life. Amen? Are you born again? Friends, 2 Corinthians 13.5 would encourage you, as it does me. It says this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And I love this little statement, unless indeed you fail the test. Are you a believer? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you recognized your sin? Have you cried out to him? Have you asked him to save you for who you are as a sinner? Have you experienced the new life, the spirit of the living God, the God who spoke all things you see right now into existence come into your heart? If you have not, I would pray that you would do that now and never forget it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great opportunity to 
come before you and consider the newness of life that you give us, Lord, when we turn to you. Lord, I pray today I don't know every person in here. I don't know them well either. I pray, God, that this would be their moment, their time, when they would come to you and die to that old life, Lord, and live unto you. Lord, would you help them? Would you guide them? That someday they will look back and they will say in their testimony, I remember that day sitting at First Baptist Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. We were passing through, or it was our home church. I don't know. But you, oh Lord, gave us new life and for cha forever changed our eternity. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.